Hi, this is Ishmael. After the beep, leave me a message about a book you love. I transcribe and share at least one voicemail every day. Hi, Ishmael. Um, everyone knows the story of the Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, but I read it in eighth grade and it changed who I am. After I read the book, I started to keep a journal and I think I'm up to eight by now. It's, it's not really like a laundry list of what I did today and what I'm going to do tomorrow, but I fill it with quotes and little stories that I started and observations and everything that I can't say to people and mostly why I was so sad for so long. For a long time, I thought that I was collecting my life so that when I died, my family would understand that I was sad even though I had so much. I always had so much. But now I think that I'm recording for myself because now I know that I'm going to grow up. These journals are for my family to look back when I'm dead, but for me to look back when I'm older and laugh at all the things that I thought were the end of the world and smile at the quotes that I remembered and the horrible drawings. And I guess I am frank to thank for that. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavina, the Associate Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about Call Me Ishmael, which is a new way to uh, share stories about books. We'll also be talking about the inspiration issue, which includes our 11th annual debut Poets Roundup. And we'll be hearing from Saeed Jones of BuzzFeed in conversation with Kat Richardson. And much more. So stick around. So this is the seventh annual inspiration issue. It is. Um, we started this back in 2010. Uh, each year we have a new artist uh, design the cover and some of the artwork on the inside. Uh, the first one, Chip Kid did, mm -hmm. started things off right. Mm -hmm. uh, and this year we uh, had Michael Waroxa design the cover and he did a really great job. I think it's a beautiful cover. Yeah, it's gorgeous. We went through a few different drafts of this cover. Uh, we'll try to get the first couple drafts um, up on the website because it's pretty interesting to see the evolution of this yeah. cover. Uh, the first the first one that he gave us was exciting, um, <laughs> but quite a bit different from what we ended yeah. up with, right? Yep. Yep, a little dark. It's a little dark, a little dark. And we um, talked about it for a while because we like dark, yep. but um, I think where we ended up is... It's a little brighter. It's, <laughs> it's definitely brighter. Yeah, there's a little bit more going on, and uh, I think it's a little more inspiring. It is inspiring. Yes. The uh, inspiration issue also includes our 11th annual debut poets roundup, mm -hmm. which is excellent. Um, as always, our, our assistant editor, Dana Isakawa, put that together. And um, each of the 10 selected poets have really awesome things to say about their work. And some of the poets that we included this year were um, Robin Cost-Lewis, who just won the National Book Award, um, Ricky Laurentis, and Morgan Parker. And we'll actually be hearing from Morgan a little bit later. Yep. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm always really excited to read their words because not only do they speak really well about, um, you know, sort of the 
the challenges and the you know what they overcame to actually you know write and publish the mm-hmm. book. But some of their like influences and uh, their inspirations mm-hmm. and their writer's block remedies mm-hmm. um, are very. I mean, they're very inspiring, but they're also like really you know, wise. They're, they're spitting the truth. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. They're like oracles. They are. They are the oracles of, of writing. So Poet oracles. Uh, really excited to, to see that again. Yeah. And we'll have the extended version of that online. And that'll include podcasts and videos and all sorts of cool stuff. What else we got? What else we got? Call Me Ishmael. We got Call Me Ishmael, which is so neat. So Call Me Ishmael was uh, started last year. It's this really awesome new website and app wherein you can call in and leave a message for Ishmael about a book that has been important or inspiring or influential to you and share a little story as a voice message. Um, And then you can hear those messages on the website, which is callmeishmael.com. But then they also went kind of a step further and built this sort of replica rotary style payphone that can be purchased and installed in bookstores or rented for events. And you can pick up that phone, like the physical phone and hear some of these messages about books. Mm -hmm. Um, You can like type in a number and hear a specific message or... Isn't it something where like uh, you can have the phone ring? Yeah, so there's an app. And so like let's say you are a bookseller and you get one of these in your bookstore. You download an app to your phone and you can actually program the, the the actual telephone to ring in the store so some like a customer can go by and pick up the phone and it'll be somebody talking about for instance the diary of Anne Frank and how that was influential to her Um, so there are hundreds of these already up on the website and they're really cool it's interesting because it's what I've the messages I've I've heard it's some there's something very um, personal about I mean you know we work kind of in the business of talking about books but I don't know. I haven't called Ishmael yet, <laughs> but it seems like when you call, it taps into something deep down about w- what moves you about a specific book. Talking to, I guess, kind of an anonymous yeah. voicemail. Yeah. And, and the messages are anonymous too. So right, you can, you right. know, they're, they're really intimate. Yeah. And I guess that kind of, you know, what the creators kind of say is that that was the hope that it's mm-hmm. a way for people to not just talk about the books that they love, but like why those books are so personally important. The book I'm going to tell you about, Ishmael, is The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. I was born about five months before the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Brown versus Board of Education that separate by definition is not equal. And in the years following that, we had Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, Martin Luther King rising to prominence. And yet when I started school six years later, our schools were still segregated. Race was, of course, a big topic. And the question that I asked my white parents and at Sunday school and elsewhere was um, about race and My Sunday school teacher told us that white people are not better than colored people, which was the politically correct term at the time, but that God wanted us to be separate, just as crows and swans were. One was not better than the other. It's just that they were separate, and God made us different because we should be 
nature. Um, what about hair color, which really kind of seemed more to me like feathers than skin color. But um, he said, well, you'll understand when you get older. And, of course, he was an adult, so I believed him I would understand when I got older. It was just the way things were. The one thing that was more credible than adults was books, and my parents were very into books, and it was the one thing that they would buy for us other than necessities and other than Christmas or birthday. And Dr. Seuss was, and in fact still is, my favorite writer. So when his new book, The Sneetches, came out, my parents bought it for me. And I was reading the Sneetches, and it was the story of star-bellied Sneetches who think they're better than the Sneetches who don't have stars on their bellies. And this entrepreneur comes along and has a machine that will put stars on the bellies of the Sneetches without stars. And the Sneetches who originally had stars said, well, we know we're better, but now we can't tell the difference, so what are we going to do? And the entrepreneur... Sylvester McMonkey McBean says, oh, I have a machine that will take stars off your bellies. You know, stars are no longer stylish. And he charges them each to get stars taken off. And so then the Sneetches originally were without stars. said, oh, my goodness, we need to be the same. So they pay McBean their money to have their stars taken off and going around and around until the Sneetches no longer have any money. But they do figure out that no snitches are better than other snitches based on whether they have stars on their bellies or not. And, of course, I understood the racial implications of that. And it really made a profound difference in how I viewed civil rights growing up. Only as an adult did I think back about how it also was a nice metaphor for how there are certain people who profit either politically or economically from having races divided against each other. But in any case, it had a very profound effect on me as a young child. Thank you, Ishmael. So you too can call Ishmael at 774-325-0503. Also in the Jan Feb issue is a Q&A with Saeed Jones, who is the newly minted executive editor of Culture at BuzzFeed. Yes, he is. He's also a poet. Uh, and his debut poetry collection, Prelude to Brews, uh, was actually included in last year's uh, debut poetry roundup. Mm-hmm. And I had the pleasure of hearing him read from that book uh, at the Brooklyn Book Festival this past summer. And it was really, really great stuff. Yeah, he's excellent. So he sat down with Kat Richardson, who's a regular contributor to the magazine. Um, they had lunch in Manhattan and they talked about a bunch of new stuff that's going on at BuzzFeed and also the new Emerging Writers Fellowship program that he helped launch there. You have to keep an open mind um, in terms of seeing how you can make a substantive difference. Um, you know, I think in terms of publishing, and certainly, you know, the, the publisher's um, weekly survey, you know, on equity, um, you know, reveals a lot of problems, right? And it oh, reveals yeah. that, you know, publishing work by writers of color, for example, is only one part of a very complicated puzzle. 
you know, we need diversity in terms of our publicists, in terms of our copy editors, in terms of our sales directors and our agents, you know, and, and, and looking in media, that's true as well. You know, it's not just about your newsroom, and I'm very, I'm proud of the diversity of my newsroom. I'm proud that all of my managers, except for Ben Smith, actually have been women in the time that I've been working. Amazing, and I love that, you know, I hope that becomes um, a norm across the industry, frankly. But you also have to look at, you know, um, how diverse is the group of freelance writers that I've been commissioning, um, the artists, you know, and so I feel like this is a way to both give writers support and more experience, you know, maybe it's a personal essay writer who has never done reporting and needs to learn, or someone who's only done reporting and would like to learn about breaking into personal essay, to give them more assets so that they can pick, write different kinds of pitches and find different kinds of opportunities to get clips. Um, because I think one thing you see is that there is definitely um, a gap in people who come from um, wealthier backgrounds, more connected backgrounds, showing up at your doorstep kind of with you know, a list of uh, clips and accreditations, and they've come out of this program, and they have a letter of recommendation from this person, right. and then you meet a really brilliant person who just hasn't had the opportunity to cultivate that kind of resume. Right. And so it takes time. The thing about talking about diversity is that no one's saying anything about diversity in publishing and media that people weren't saying 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the same thing. It won't change. What changes is when people decide to put their money where their mouth is. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something I have to do, too, and I take really seriously. Yes, I'm happy to write essays and tweet and share articles and resources, but there comes a time when you say, okay, how much money are we going to invest in this? Right. You know, are we? can we create a fellowship program? Can we um, decide to invest in culture and just recognize that this is a part of our ethos, you know, I think that's the difference between, you know, a publishing industry that's 89% white one year and 89% white the next year, is you can sit on panels and have conversations all you want, but ultimately, you have to look at it in terms of structure, Um, and, and that requires money. And time and, and, and um, kind of time capital. You know, I, I will say I'm well off in my career. I am taken care of. Um, and so if I just say, well, I'm okay, I'm okay, and I don't want to rock the boat, um, that that only adds, that's not a neutral decision. Right. You know? Yeah. That, that actually gives more evidence to kind of keeping things from changing. You know, and so I just I just think it's really important to power through that discomfort yeah. and have the conversation anyway. One of this year's debut poets is Morgan Parker, whose book Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night uh, was published by Switchback Books earlier this year. Um This book is really awesome. Um, It's funny, it's fierce, it's honest, it's beautiful, it's heartbreaking. And she takes much of her inspiration from pop culture, um, which she uses to kind of make a comment on this moment in American culture and time. Um, And it's about race and it's about women. And it's just really worth checking out. So we asked Morgan to read a couple poems from that book. Uh, So here are two poems from Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night. 
There are other things I want to explain, but they are mysteries. What is usually said about love, I ignore. Worship instead the wilted flowers gleaming in our throats. What you don't know is I envy this world, and I want to save it. Squeeze its bloodied hand like so, saying, This will sting, but only for a minute. Our primary concern will always be the gnawing feeling. Like when I wake up to wonder how many serial killers have entered my life, how the truth can feel like anthills. Their tiny, sandy curves, their crests like nipples. What I really want to ask is, what do you think of the idea of progress? And is it an injury I can fix? Miss Black America. Does she grind slow on back when harmonies? Squint at boys to men high notes or mosh pit and shit kickers. Is she a flower in your mind? Is she bootylicious? Did her mama say there'd be days like this? Is she rhythm or blues? Billy or Billy Jean? Do the white boys back it up? Are their mothers terrified? Portland, Oregon. We were. On October 17th uh, for Poets Runners Live. Yes. Uh, we had a great program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Mm-hmm. Tom Spanbauer was there. Mm-hmm. Elena Passarella was there. Mm-hmm. Matthew Dickman was there. And it was all kicked off by a keynote by Barry Lopez, who is just such a great writer and a sweet man. Uh, you know, everybody knows his writing, um, you know, Arctic Dreams, um, very powerful writer, um, but just such a warm, compassionate, thoughtful man. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the kind of guy where if you email him, he'll give you a call, mm-hmm. uh, which I love. But he he started things off just right, I thought, um, with the keynote. Uh, and you can read an excerpt, um, sort of an adapted excerpt of that talk uh, in the new issue. And we're also going to uh, listen to some of it now. We've... Uh come together here in Portland um, as people whose lives pivot on issues of language and story, poets and writers, publishers and teachers, readers, under the aegis of poets and writers and as the guests in some sense of the Pacific Northwest College of Art, come together as a community to experience and talk about what we do. There are many good reasons to be here, to network, to use that overworked word, to become reacquainted with some of the things we miss, like each other's physical presence, to get a more empirical sense of what makes Portland a really remarkable literary community it is, and to explore the practical side of our praxis, our way in the world. For those of you who do not live here, I want to extend a respectful welcome, though I'm not from here either. I live about 150 miles down the road and 
off a ways in the mountains, but we're a sort of long-distance people here in Oregon, and I'm always glad to have time here in Portland for the zeitgeist of the place, for the energy that's here, not to mention the food. <laughs> Whatever might have urged any one of us to give up other things in order to be here this morning, I want to say first, I know how hard people have worked to make it worth everyone's while. And second, whether you attend a workshop or gain an insight into your own language from someone else's throwaway remark or fall in love here, my gut sense is that you'll walk away with that buzzing feeling, modest or great, that comes from an encounter with oneself or with art or with another person, which obliterates for you ennui or loneliness or disaffection or indifference. With your permission, I'd like to ask that you step away from the press of all that's immediate for each of us just now, the state of our own work, the nag of commercial realities that dog us all, the future of MFA programs, and consider the deeper reasons that we're here. I'm thinking of another time than right now, a time before Virgil and Homer in the Western tradition, thinking of late Holocene storytellers, if you will, thinking of the last centuries of the Pleistocene, and imagining storytellers at their craft, or, if you will, their art. Let's say somewhere in the Dordogne Valley in present-day France. If being precise here helps, I would say Magdalenian phase, Cro-Magnon time. What in the world were they doing with their narrative arcs and their characterization, their onomatopoeic trills and their mnemonic devices, their dazzling tropes, their understatement and their humor? What were they doing? No one knows, of course, what was going on in the social lives of people 12,000 years ago before engines became a sine qua non of war, before what you might call the tyranny of commerce, before the social restructuring that came with cities like Ur. Storytelling and ceremony left no artifacts for us to puzzle over, so we don't know what it was like though we have the remnants of this expression still before us today in the storytelling traditions of indigenous people. And it's my time with them in various places in the world, that bit of good fortune that compels me to make a guess this morning about why storytelling is an indispensable art, why we need the therapy of poetry and what you might call the ministry of story more than anyone can completely say. We need them, I believe, in the way that we need water if we're to revive ourselves in this harrowing time of an unexamined and tyrannical present. Pick any place and go deep. The streets of Juarez, if you're a young woman looking for a way to escape casual murder. The corporate boardroom of the Volkswagen Corporation last month. The Inupiaq village of Shishmaref 
on the Seward Peninsula in Alaska, which is washing into the Chukchi Sea this morning with global climate change. America's evolving corporate democracy, or a fishing boat in the Bay of Bengal or the South China Sea, where the life-giving waters are this morning occluded by vast clouds of single-use plastics, a smog of microparticles found today in several enormous gyres in all of the world's oceans. I'm not talking solely, of course, about a time of staggering environmental issues, but about a time of unraveling, of national overnight economic collapse, of Boko Haram and the fate of schoolgirls, of residual aquatic Prozac. However you penetrate this veil, however you structure it to make it comprehensible, it's on its way to becoming the Anthropocene story of us. The reason we tell stories, to judge from what I've seen among traditional people, and what I believe was well worked out by Cro-Magnon people, is to keep each other from being afraid. We tell stories and we write poems historically to keep awe and aspiration and comprehension and the other components of hopeful lives bright in each other's hearts. It's how we're moved to take care of each other when we recognize how extremely thin the veneer of civilization we cherish is and how very hard it is to keep that veneer from shredding in the wind. We're here to learn more about how to do well what we love to do. But in those moments when through some strange process of elevation, we transcend ourselves, we're here because despite our aesthetic and political or ethnic differences, we value each other. And we know in our deep and private places that we have a responsibility to take on the things that draw our attention and turn them into these mysterious objects, poems, and stories that illuminate, that object to the status quo, that warn and empower. We're here for what the program in your hands says, but we're here too for these other reasons. We're here for each other in more ways than one. Thank you. Next stop is Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. Uh, January 9th at the Blanton Museum of Art. We will be there to talk about inspiration. That's right. And uh, Elizabeth McCracken is yes. going to be giving the keynote mm -hmm. uh, for this event. And uh, faithful listeners of Ampersand will remember that she was interviewed for the very first episode of this podcast when she won the Story Prize, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, she's going to be joined by Benjamin Percy, who's making the trip. Saeed Jones will be there. Matthew Gavin Frank, mm -hmm. David Searcy, Ben Fountain is going to be there. Mm -hmm. Great lineup. It's going to be a really great day. Uh, tickets are on sale, pw.org slash live. And you're looking for a refrigerator box. I am. Weirdly enough, I'm looking for a refrigerator box. Why is that? Um, well, it was something that came up on Twitter, actually. Um, so we're going to be doing uh, the Perfect Pitch panel, mm -hmm. which we've done a couple of times in the past. But for this one, Jill Myers is going to be there. Uh, she's an editor at uh, Strange Object in Texas. 
It's a great small press. Michael Schaub is going to be there. He's the uh, book critic, actually the, the featured book critic in Reviewers and Critics in the Gen Feb issue, and Scott Hoffman, he's an agent. Anyway, the the refrigerator box came up on Twitter. Joe Myers sort of joked that, you know, we should really make a an elevator for mm-hmm. the stage uh, mm-hmm. while we do the perfect pitch because we'll be inviting audience members to share their elevator pitches and we're <laughs> going to sort of, you know, have some fun with it and, and critique them. Mm-hmm. Um, and also maybe pipe in some Muzak. Some Muzak. I, I think, think that'll be, be a, we'll, we'll have to do that. Absolutely. So any listeners in Austin who can help me out with a, uh, a refrigerator box. Hit us up. That'd, that'd be great. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to have some fun. Um, it's our seventh Post Runners Live event. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be inspiring. That's Ampersand. Episode five. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about the March-April issue, Writer's Retreats. But in the meantime, pick up a copy of the new issue. Yeah, get inspired. Get inspired. The cover artist was inspired. Yeah. I think he was uh, reading some Emily Dickinson Mm -hmm. when he made that one. Uh, That quote that she has, the, if I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that it's poetry. Yes. I think, um, you know... If, if you feel like the top of your head is taken off as you're looking at this magazine, you're going to know that it's Poets and Writers. That is Poets and Writers. So tune in next time. Ampersand. The Poets and Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited by Melissa Falavino with assistance from Jonathan Walsh. Music and recordings for this episode were provided by Call Me Ishmael, Poddington Bear, Tyrannic Toy, Chris Zabriskie, and The Crevulators. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or on our website, where you'll find photos, video, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including a video of Barry Lopez at Poets and Writers Live, the extended debut Poets Roundup, and a Q&A with Saeed Jones at pw.org forward slash ampersand.